Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you've told us in your word that you've given us everything related to life and godliness. You've given this to us through both the resources that we have through God the Holy Spirit and through the completed canon of Scripture. Father, we're grateful that we have a completed canon before us, that we have it in our own language, and that we have uh, good, accurate translations that, uh, for the most part, convey the truth of the original language. How important it is that we can take the time just to daily read and reflect upon your word. Father, as we study about uh, Solomon and his failures, we're reminded that uh, this can happen to any one of us at any particular time, and that the reasons this happens is because we begin to become complacent, relaxed in our own spiritual life, our own spiritual growth. Our priorities gradually slip. It's easy to become distracted with various details of life, and it's easy to think that uh, at some point that because we haven't had major problems lately or because uh, whatever the reason might be that um, we have pretty much arrived and there's not much more, much further to go in our spiritual life. We pray that you might challenge us from your word with what we study tonight and that we might be reminded that if uh, someone who had as much as Solomon, someone who had such great uh, gifts of wisdom and understanding of your word, Uh, should fail in the miserable way that he did, that this can be true of any of us. Now, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to what you have to teach us in your word tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11. We've been looking the last several uh, lessons at the doctrine of prosperity testing. And then from that, we did a summary and a review of the uh, problem-solving devices, problem related to any type of situation that calls for a solution. Doesn't By problem, I don't necessarily mean something that is negative, something that is harsh, something that is uh, surprising, uh, some sort of extreme adversity. I basically mean some, anything that calls for a decision, because whenever you have a decision to make, By and large, we have choices related to the application of the Word of God or not. Now, there's, of course, a whole realm of things that don't, where the Word doesn't apply, whether or not you're going to get up in the morning and put on a blue shirt or a red shirt, or whether you're going to wear uh, this color shoe or that color shoe, or whether you're going to have bacon and eggs for breakfast or cereal for breakfast. Those are not the kind of decisions I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kinds of situations in life that where you really have a a choice between doing something God's way, 
doing uh, uh, by you know applying the word, doing God's uh, applying God's word God's way, where you're not only talking about doing the right thing, but doing it in the right way. And that's where so many people tend to fall apart, is they think that they're doing the right thing, and it doesn't matter what the way is, or they think they're doing it the right way, and it's not really the right thing at all. And the only way you can come to understand and have the discernment in those areas is through a study of the Word over and over again. And the more I grow, the more I learn, the more I study, the more I realize how pathetically ignorant I really am and how I need to keep relearning the same basics over again. And sometimes I sit and look at a congregation and think, where are all these people that ought to be listening who are self-satisfied and think that they've reached a point in their spiritual life where they really don't need to make the word as high a priority as uh, I say it is or as others have said it is. And so we run into this example of Solomon in 1 Kings 11. Now, to remind ourselves, Solomon as a young man is described as someone who loved the Lord. That means in biblical terminology that he knew the law in terms of the Mosaic law and he obeyed the law because again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, God makes this distinction that the way you express your love for him is to keep his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments that the measure of our love for God is not by how we feel about God. And yet modern man, uh, modern 20th century man, 21st century man, has taken love to be a purely emotive concept. And when it comes to spiritual things, we think we love God because we have certain feelings about him. And this has infiltrated the church to such a tremendous degree that it's almost impossible to find anybody who is saying anything truly substantive or accurate about biblical love because their starting point is it has something to do with emotion or feeling or some sort of subjective uh, sense about God. And our subjective emotions, impressions, feelings can be terribly misleading even to the point that they become uh, idolatrous. And we end up, rather than worshiping an idol of metal or wood or stone, which was the major failing of the Jews in their spiritual life in the Old Testament, we have a tendency, and by we I mean uh, modern Christians, evangelical Christians in America, have a tendency to generate uh, mental images, constructs, uh, opinions about God, what pleases God, what uh, their relationship with God is, and what God must like from them, and then they worship that. And it's just a mental form of idolatry because they don't have enough knowledge of the Word to truly understand who God is or who Jesus is. That's the problem with these little trite sayings. They're actually not trite. They've become trite and trivialized by their Uh, being emblazoned upon wristbands and T-shirts and baseball caps and whatever, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's a great question that we should ask and be thinking about. It's occupation with Christ in just another another format. But you can't answer the question, what would Jesus do, if you don't know Jesus? 
And remember, we look at John 14, one of my favorite passages in this area, where Peter and Philip are both who have spent day in and day out camping, walking, observing, listening, dialoguing with the uh, Lord Jesus Christ for three years or more. And they're sitting there saying, well, who are you? And, and well, show us who you are. Show us the Father. And to Philip, Jesus says, well, Philip, how long have you been with me? And yet you don't even know me. You have not come to know me, a perfect tense on the, on the verb genomai. And so it takes time and it takes thought. It takes study and reflection to come to know anyone, much less the God of creation and the Lord of the universe. And yet people don't want to take the time to do that. They think, you know, plugging in an hour on Sunday morning or plugging in a a tape once or twice a week. And that's good because that communicates information. Sometimes that information is couched in a way that uh, stimulates us, encourages us, motivates us. And sometimes it's couched in ways that we know really convict us. The Holy Spirit uses that to challenge us with what's right and what's wrong in our spiritual life. But too often, it, we turn off the tape recorder, we turn off the MP3 player, whatever the circumstance may be, and five minutes later, our thought is completely consumed with the details of life. Rather than sitting and thinking about what we have studied and reflecting upon it. That's what the Bible refers to as meditation, is to reflect or think about that. It's not the meditation of Eastern religions, which is the idea of just emptying your mind of content and until uh, you just get totally, your mind is vacated of all thought. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible means to fill your mind with the thought of Scripture and to reflect upon it, to think about it, to think about, okay, how does this that I just read, how does that impact my life? And I can get, tonight we're in first part of 1 Kings 11, and part of this is going to give you something of a framework, I hope, that can help you think this through. This is something that I started using this years ago. I use it uh, when I teach, as I think through different situations, it's really great when you're in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is more than anything else. It's stories, it's history, it's narrative, it's the stories of people and their, uh, their relationship with God and their obedience and their disobedience. And one of the great principles we see in the Bible is that in the Word of God, God presents the characters of the Old Testament, warts and all. We see their failings, we see their flaws, we see their sin nature. They even get tagged with these names that relate to their sin nature, and hopefully they'll, and we know that they'll get a new name when they get to heaven, but you just wouldn't want to go through all of eternity being known as Rahab the harlot. And yet, how would you like to be tagged with that and know that everybody down through history I was always referring to you as Rahab the prostitute. And yet, beyond that, she had a tremendous spiritual life and walked with the Lord, and it didn't have anything to do with that which had been her uh, previous occupation. So, 
Uh, we look at these people, and the thing that makes the stories in the Bible great stories, and those of you who are prep school teachers need to learn this principle, the thing that makes a great story a great story is conflict. And conflict always has to be resolved somewhere. There has to be some sort of solution to the conflict. And when the conflict involves man in the scriptures, then the hero who provides the solution is God. When I teach Old Testament survey, one of the principles I always try to drill into students and to pastors is always think of the Old Testament as a, as a great story, and God is always the hero. Always try to think in terms of whatever the story is that you're dealing with as God being the one who's ultimately communicating something, exemplifying something, teaching something, solving something. And ultimately, in all the great stories in Scripture, we always have God solving something one way or another. And he gives us those tools. That's why we call it a problem-solving device. And you can take those the problem-solving devices that I've gone through the last uh, couple of lessons and Take those and impose those on the story that you're looking at in the text, asking the question, which problem-solving devices are they using? How are they using it? And do I find myself in similar type situations, challenges, adversity or prosperity, whatever it may be, and how am I utilizing the problem-solving devices in the same way? What can I learn there? And or, as we'll see tonight, what isn't applied, learning from the negative, what isn't applied, what isn't done, what, how these problem-solving devices work, and whether you call them by the names I call them by or whatever you want to call them, it really doesn't matter as long as you get the gist of each of these because they, they, each of these ten uh, problem-solving devices or stress busters or spiritual skills basically encapsulates each one of them encapsulates a series of sub-dynamics uh, or, or sub-devices, you might say. There's, there's aspects, underlying aspects to each one of these. So what we see in 1 Kings 11 is the description of Solomon's failure. Everything up to this point from 1 Kings 1 through 10 has been on a positive trajectory. Samuel was a young man when he becomes king. He's probably close to 20 we know that he reigns for 40 years, so he dies close to 60. That still seems uh, relatively young, but it's about the same age as, as uh, Saul and probably about the same age as David when, when they died. So he had a somewhat normal life expectancy. We know that he dedicates the temple, or he not the dedication of the temple, but the, the, yeah, the, uh, the building of the temple, the completion of all his major uh, structures is about 20 years. The, the pro temple project, all that takes to, to about the time that he's 40. And so this failure occurs in the last 20 years of his life, probably in the last 10 years of his life. But the foundation for that failure in the last 10 years of his life is actually seen much earlier in his life. And that's true for all of us. There are sin patterns, there are areas of weakness, there are tendencies that we have in our sin nature that if we don't deal with them under the principles of Scripture, then it's very likely that when we get into our uh, later years 
then what happens is these things really have grown and grown and grown, and all of a sudden uh, some of these sin patterns that were somewhat hidden, nobody else saw or we kept them quiet, suddenly become out there in the open for everybody else to see. And that's sort of what happens with with uh, Samuel. I remember years ago, I was a teenager, and I heard somebody teaching on the Scriptures, and they said, whatever you are to a little degree when you're in your teenage years, just uh, increase that exponentially by a factor of 10 or 20, and that's what you'll be when you're 70 or 80. That applies to both your virtues and your your flaws. So we see that in Solomon. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. This, this chapter is going to describe Solomon's failure. It's going to dis- describe God's discipline on Solomon for his failure. Even though we know from Ecclesiastes, it takes a long time for Solomon to recover. It's a long time before he confesses his sins, a long time before he gets back with the Lord, but he does eventually. That's the story of Ecclesiastes. I think it's interesting that the book that Solomon probably wrote first is Proverbs, where he expresses his wisdom, and the book that he wrote last was probably Ecclesiastes. We can't say for sure, be dogmatic on these things, but we we can be fairly certain with Ecclesiastes that he wrote this uh, towards the end of his life. And so we know that he did recover, but even though he recovered, even though he confessed his sin, and even though he repented in the true sense of the word, which means simply to change, he reversed course and turned back to God and became obedient again by the end of his life, that even though he did that, there were still consequences to his sin, both the natural consequences of his sin as well as divine discipline that didn't just affect him, but it affected thousands and thousands of people for generations. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and say, well, nobody's going to know about this, and what does it matter in the scheme of things if I have this sin pattern in my life or that sin pattern in my life? And we never know what the impact might be on those around us and what the divine discipline may be that comes into our lives and how that might affect so many others. And part of God's discipline on Solomon for his uh, shift to idolatry here is that the kingdom is going to be taken, for the most part, all but uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin will be taken away from the uh, authority of the house of David. This is going to set up an alternate kingdom in the north, the ten nation, confed- uh, ten nation kingdom, uh, under uh, the leadership of Jeroboam the first to begin with, who takes them right into idolatry. Later, under Ahab, when he marries Jezebel, it's going to take the northern kingdom into uh, the worst forms of idolatry and the fertility religions that were practiced in, in the ancient world. It's going to result in the discipline of, of economic disaster on many in both the southern and the northern kingdom 
And these are the same people who have experienced such tremendous collateral blessing from Solomon. They have seen the, the golden age of Solomon. They have experienced the tremendous wealth that has come to the nation Israel that God has blessed them with because of Solomon's obedience, because of his maturity. God has blessed them richly. And so the people, the, 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 from the top to the bottom, in, in Israelite society at that time, were blessed in phenomenal ways materially. But there were seeds to disaster that were already being sown, and once God lowered the boom in terms of divine discipline, those people lost their prosperity, they lost their wealth. There, there, was, there were so many things that reverberated unintended consequences from one person's sin. So the warning there is that we need to pay attention to the fact that sin has consequences far beyond anything we ever imagine at the time that we are committing those sins. And that the discipline may not only affect us, but it may affect our spouse, our children, our grandchildren. It may affect uh, people where we work. Just think how many people in this country are on negative volition right now and are rejecting the truth of Scripture And yet there's hundreds of thousands of believers who are trying to do the right thing, studying the word, growing to maturity in this country. But because of the vast number of uh, people who are in degeneracy and perversion and idolatry and demonism in this country, there's believers are going to suffer by association as God brings discipline upon this nation. And so that's an opportunity for believers to be a witness. You know, we, God's grace always turns uh, suffering into blessing, but I would rather have blessing for blessing and not suffering for blessing. I don't know about you. That's just, that's just my opinion. So I uh, really don't want to live in a nation that is going through negative volition and divine discipline. I would much rather live in the southern, uh, in, in Israel, the first 20 years of Solomon's reign, then live in uh, the northern kingdom of Judah under Ahab's reign, right? I think most of us would agree with that. So, but the issues that make the difference are spiritual. They're not economic. They're not, they aren't dependent upon natural resources in the ground. Uh, they are dependent ultimately on what is in the soul of leadership. And you can make a lot of application to that, to the leadership that we have in our nation, whether it's political leadership, whether it is business leadership, whether it is family leadership, because across the board in every venue uh, you can go to, there is a failure of biblical leadership. Men have failed to be the leaders in the home. Uh, men have failed and women have failed to be the kind of, of leaders they should be in business. There is a tremendous lack of integrity and a lack of righteousness in business today. And all of this has a cumulative effect. And when the house of cards comes crashing down, as it will, it's going to uh, bring a tremendous amount of suffering and adversity into everybody's lives not just those who have uh, been responsible for this. So we come to 1 Kings chapter 11, and one principle that I want to remind you of before we get started, there's two or three actually, 
just as a framework for approaching this, is first of all, when a per- this is an illustration of God's faithful, loyal love. One of the key words that we find in the scriptures, starting with uh, some in Exodus, but mostly in Deuteronomy, is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that we've looked at in the past many times, and it basically refers to God's faithful, loyal love. There's two different words in the Hebrew for love. One is ahav, and the other is chesed. And ahav has to do with a love that is based on attraction, uh, based on uh, rapport, based on feelings of uh, emotional feelings, whatever it may be. Uh, chesed is a love that is based on a contract. It's based on a covenant. It has structure to it. It has um, a commitment underneath that underlying it that doesn't depend upon anything. The kind of love that that a uh, young boy may have for a young girl that he sees and he's attracted to and he likes and he enjoys spending time with, uh, this would be a hav love, the kind of love that governs a marriage after the wedding, which is defined in terms of a contract, is a chesed love. And that's what gives it stability and certainty, or it should, is because it is grounded in a contract that gives structure and meaning and definition to the concept of love. And all of this is related to salvation. Because when we think of the contractual nature of what God does when he saves us from the very beginning of uh, biblical history up through the present, when God, God makes a promise to save people on a, the basis of faith in his promise. In the Old Testament, it was a promise of future deliverance. In the New Testament, it, is, it looks back to what Christ did on the cross as he paid the penalty in our sins and establishes the basis for the new contract, the new covenant. And so salvation is pictured this way. And our first principle is that when a person is saved, that salvation can't be lost no matter what the sin might be. That's what's depicted here in a broader sense with Solomon. Because when God came along first to Abraham and then to David, he entered into a an unconditional con- contract or covenant with both Abraham and with David. And he promised Abraham that he would make a great nation from, from his seed. He promised him land. Now, there were certain conditions attached to the enjoyment of that, those blessings. But he guaranteed that there would be a genetic, ethnic descent from, from Abraham and that this genetic, ethnic group would be the source of worldwide blessing and they would have an eternal homeland on a specific piece of real estate. And God can't back off of that. Now, this is a problem that you have that's inherent in certain forms of five-point Calvinisms, especially the form that emphasizes the pea and the tulip, the perseverance of the saints, because their view is that if a person doesn't persevere in obedience, then they weren't actually saved to begin with. That's their idea. How do you know you had real saving faith? Because you have fruits in keeping with repentance. You you persevere, and that reveals the genuine nature uh, nature of your faith. 
This comes out of and is part of a system of biblical interpretation referred to as covenant theology. Now, most Calvinists would believe in eternal security, but eternal security for them has a big if in it. You can't ever lose your salvation if you were truly saved. Well, how do you know you were truly saved? If you have works in keeping with your with repentance. That's how you know that you had the right kind of faith, by, by the fruit in your life. And if you don't persevere, you didn't have the right kind of faith. So for them, you can't lose salvation. You just realize you never had it to begin with. Okay, so it's a backdoor works, uh, works salvation. But this goes hand in hand because... Uh, in their view, in the view of covenant theology of Israel and the church, Israel fails when they reject the Messiah, and so God takes the promises away from them and gives them to the church. It's replacement theology. And so inherent there is this idea that in, that Israel failed to persevere, demonstrating they weren't the true seed, so they can't keep the promise and keep the blessing, and so God's going to take it away from them. Now, the problem of this for God is that it challenges both God's integrity and his omnipotence. Because if he promises something and then doesn't give it, then he doesn't have integrity. If he promises to do something no matter what, and he can't control the circumstances and the power and have the power to bring about what he has promised, then he's not God. And this is a problem that you have with these forms of theology is that it it rejects this idea of the permanence of God's promise. Now, what we see biblically is that God makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to work through his descendants, and their ultimate blessing, worldwide blessing will be as a result of the seed. On the other hand, he goes to David and gives an additional covenant or expansion of that contract, and he promises that this seed is ultimately going to come through David and through David's descendants, and there's no condition attached to it. So then comes Solomon. Now, Solomon is going to send to the max, and he is going to, if God could have broken his promise, he would have, because of the evil that Solomon introduces into the nation Israel. But God is showing that he is true to his promise, that his integrity and his power are such that there is nothing that a man can do to force God to abrogate his promise once he has made that. So Israel is totally secure. The descent through David is totally secure. But there are, there are temporal consequences to sin. They, they just don't get to live with impunity. And we see those in, um, in this illustration from the life of Solomon. So the application for us, one application for us from this, is that our future salvation is secured by the integrity of God, by the omnipotence of God, which establishes and guarantees the promise. However, through disobedience and through sin, we can forfeit the blessing and the inheritance. We don't lose the position in the covenant, 
the promise, eternal salvation, but we can forfeit inheritance. We can forfeit rewards. We can forfeit a blessing both in time and eternity. Second key lesson we learn here is that sin has consequences. Now, sometimes God, when, when we confess our sins or when we commit certain sins for whatever reason related to the grace of God, God just doesn't nail us for those sins. He doesn't discipline us. If God disciplined us, if God disciplined me for every sin I've committed that I'm aware of and I know how he has disciplined other people, I don't know that I would be alive today. And I'm sure that every one of you can relate to that, that God just doesn't seem to lower the boom on every sin that we commit. That's great. So we don't get the divine discipline, but that's God's choice, not ours. So we don't know when we'll get it and when we won't. So don't go home and think, well, okay, you know, I can just keep on saying because God hadn't nailed me for this yet, so I guess he won't. Um, God is going to, God disciplines us in the ways that are right and appropriate to each of us in terms of our spiritual growth. So sometimes he doesn't ever discipline us for certain things and we grow out of it. Other times he just diminishes, minimizes the discipline. It's not nearly as bad as it could have been and we're very grateful for that and we straighten up uh, pretty quickly. And then at other times he really does need to discipline us with the full force of his justice to get our attention and to rattle our arrogant cages. So we have to recognize that sin has consequences. It uh, not always just in terms of divine discipline. It has consequences on our own spiritual growth. It's going to be interesting, if we get the opportunity to see this, to get an idea in heaven of what our spiritual life might have been like if we just had not committed that sin or this other sin or if we just hadn't uh, just uh, justified uh, this particular course of sins in our life. We never know what kind of future obstacles or unintended consequences develop out from our sin. Furthermore, personal sin may develop into personal tragedy and suffering brought on by bad decisions we make from a position of weakness. We may make some very foolish decision that has to do with satisfying our sin nature, and it may cost us everything that we have. And we don't know that at the time. It may uh, have devastating consequences in the lives of those around us in all manner of unexpected ways. Uh, it may just be that God deals with us in terms of discipline and removes certain blessings both in time and eternity because of the ongoing sin pattern. And uh, it may not bother us a whole lot, but it may have devastating consequences on those around us. We never know what that suffering by association factor may be. With Solomon, his sin, which went on for a number of years, it's not like he got involved immediately in idolatry and God lowered the boom. As it went on and on and on and on, finally God intervened. And Solomon's sin related to his internationalism, because that's ultimately what it is. I mean, it's it's interesting. You get into this this whole scenario where 
Uh, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It lists the nations where these wives are from, and I would I would suspect that 99 out of 100 uh, messages that deal with this focus on uh, Solomon's sexual proclivities. That's not what's going on here. That may be a factor, but that's not really what's going on here. This is not a problem of someone like Joseph Smith. You know, Joseph Smith was who founded uh, uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Now, he was a sexual pervert. He, in order to uh, have his elders demonstrate their loyalty to him, he demanded that uh, they allow him to sleep with every one of their wives. One of the reasons he built polygamy into Mormonism is to, in order to control women, because no woman in Mormonism can get to heaven unless her husband, who is resurrected first, invites her to join him. So she has to be extremely subservient to his every wish, or she won't get invited into the next life. Furthermore, no woman, single woman, can get into the next life unless there's a husband to call her into the next life. That's why uh, women, the average age of marriage in Utah is somewhere south of 16. You won't get that too, figure too many places. You know how, what the average age of divorce is in Utah? 18. First divorce for women. Average age is 18. That means they've got to be getting married before, you know, one or two years before, and they're forced into it by these religious convictions that the woman can't get to heaven without the man. Now, that's sexual perversion that is built into a religious system. That's not what's going on with Solomon. Solomon, first of all, Solomon is a, is in his older years. He's not, uh, he's not a young man who suddenly has decided that he needs to uh, take care of all of his uh, lustful desires by getting married to a lot of women and then having a lot of concubines. He's entering into these relationships with all of the surrounding countries, and these are these are marriages designed to shore up alliances and to strengthen uh, Israel's ties with her neighbors as a means of protection. That's what's going on here. The primary thing that's driving this is power and security, not sex. Well, you won't get that from too many people. But that's what's really driving this. It's a loyalty to God issue rather than trusting God to provide for the security and the stability and the prosperity of the nation. And if anybody had seen God provide for the security, the stability, and the prosperity of the nation, Solomon had. And that tells us right away that empirical evidence... Empirical data isn't the issue in spiritual things. People who say, you know, if I just saw Jesus walk on the water, if I just saw God heal somebody, if I just uh, experienced this, then I would trust God. Well, they're lying to themselves. The Bible says again and again, that'll never happen. Solomon, look at everything Solomon had. He had two personal appearances by God in his life. Now, you would think that that might that empirical evidence might really uh, really affect him. He had wealth beyond. God promised him he would make him wealthier than any king in the world and wiser than any king in the world, and God did. And yet, 
Solomon just gets to the point where he takes it for granted because that's where our sin nature goes. We are driven by this sense of autonomy that somehow it's all, everything I have is really ultimately due to me. We easily slip into some sort of works orientation. So the ultimate problem that Solomon has is a spiritual problem. It's not a lust problem. It's not ultimately even a power problem. It is a failure to trust God at his word to provide for the protection, the security, the stability, and the prosperity of the nation. So he's going to try to solve the problems himself, problem-solving device, human viewpoint style, by entering into alliances first with the daughter of Pharaoh. And incidentally, this is the first time when you get to these, this episode with Solomon, this is the first time that you see Egypt as a major player on the foreign scenario since Exodus. After God wiped out their army and wiped out their economy and basically wiped out their entire infrastructure through the ten plagues, it has taken them almost, a, almost what, 600 years to recover but we don't see Egypt mentioned as one of the oppressing nations in Judges. You don't see Egypt as a problem for Saul or for David. But now Egypt is coming on the scene again. And so he entered, Solomon enters into uh, an alliance, reminded of the words of George Washington, that uh, his advice was that uh, the United States should avoid entangling themselves in foreign alliances. Well, that's exactly what Solomon is doing. He's entangling the nation in foreign alliances, and he's sealing those alliances with these marriages. And as part of the deal, when he brings these women, these wives, into his home, they're bringing with him their opinions, their human viewpoint, their religions, the demons that are behind these religions, the demonic influence that's there, and he succumbs to that through uh, eventual pressure, just the peer pressure, the desire to be accepted, the realization that everybody has all of these different... How many times have we heard this kind of argument in our lives? That as people become more internationally oriented, more global in their travels, it was really saw this with American culture after, uh, during and subsequent to World War II with a prosperity that Americans had as many men had traveled throughout the world during World War II to fight in Southeast Asia, to fight in Southern, South Pacific, to fight in India, to fight in, uh, in Africa, they became exposed to all kinds of different, different religious systems and different ideas and different values. That drove a large number of those men into the mission field when they came back from World War II. They had a desire to come back and take the gospel to, to those people. But a large number of people as well, men who were negative to truth, realize that there's all kinds of truths out there, all kinds of religious systems out there. Who are we to say that we are the only ones who have a market on truth? And so you begin to see American society start to shift in the 50s as people became more and more aware of different cultures, different people that had different religious systems, and so that that. Uh, historical anchor in the truth of Scripture began to slip 
culturally. And this idea of, of every, everybody has different ways. We have to respect every religion. And this concept of tolerance uh, began to be a more and more uh, recognized in culture. But the term changed. Tolerance and being tolerant used to mean that I think your ideas are horrible. Uh, if you follow your ideas, you're going to destroy yourself and this nation. I abhor and despise your ideas, and they're dead wrong. But I'm, you know, I'm going to put up with it and allow you the freedom to live in this country, even though you have ideas that are uh, self-destructive. Now, tolerance means, that, of course, what I just said is completely intolerant in today's terminology. Tolerance means that you have to approve and go along with what other people. Uh, believe and say, no matter how asinine, destructive, stupid, foolish, or bib- biblically wrong, it is. And you can't say that it's wrong, that it's immoral, that their homosexuality is uh, immoral and destructive and perverse, and if it's allowed to continue without interference from government, it will destroy the country. Because that's the way God created reality is if you let these certain things go unhindered or unchallenged, that eventually uh, it results in complete destruction. And so now in order to be tolerant, you have to approve of this. You even have to promote it. And if you don't, then you are uh, completely intolerant. And that's what we're going to go after legally is the most dangerous stuff in the world is this intolerance, and we're just going to call it uh, hate speech, and we're going to come up with uh, various legislation in order to uh, prevent this and in order to incarcerate people who believe in, uh, in absolutes. So Solomon becomes exposed to all of these different uh, cultures, all of these different religions, and it comes into him through an area, probably an area of weakness for him, which is all of these women. King Solomon, we're told, loved Many foreign women. That's not chesed, that's ahav. Has to do with a, with attraction. It could be sexual, it may not be, but it's, it's clearly emotional. And so there is this attraction there that not only the daughter of Pharaoh, but the Moabites, that's, where's Moab? Moab is on the, is over in the area of Transjordan today. Moab is on the, uh, southeastern flank, the Ammonites, that's just north of there. Uh, or excuse me, the Moabites would be further north and the Ammonites in the middle and then the Edomites to the southeast. Uh, the Sidonian, this is up in the area of Tyre and Sidon, modern Lebanon, and then the Hittite women. Uh, the old Hittite empire was modern Turkey and it came around across the north to uh, Syria and covered that particular area. So he has... Uh, married women from the courts of all of the major nations surrounding Israel. That's the point. Instead of being loyal to God as the sole protector of Israel, Israel's God, he is going to give his loyalty to these women and their national gods. Solomon, the basic problem is he's become an internationalist. It's back to the Tower of Babel again. He is not going to keep Israel as a distinct holy people. That's what holy means, is unique, distinct, set apart. He is being influenced 
by all of this internationalism, this globalism, uh, he's one of the first multiculturalists. You know, he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't a uh, a postmodern in the in the sense we have today, but he's doing the same kind of thing. He's giving value and credence, and he is approving of their system. Now we're going to see a divine viewpoint terminology here that I think I, I'm going to start adopting because it's biblical. And I think it's, it's a, if, if, if the Holy Spirit thinks this is right, then this has got to be right. And I want you to pay attention to this. 1 Kings 11, verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel. Okay, he's marrying these women from specific nations where God had uh, prohibited this. So he is failing, first of all, he's failing the uh, law code test, which is his primary responsibility as the king, is to pass that uh, test, and he's supposed to write a copy of the law out uh, for himself on a daily basis. And verse 3, just to finish out the first three verses, he had 700 wives, princesses, see they came from royal families, aristocracy, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. And here heart has the idea of his mentality, his thinking, his focus, he shifts from divine viewpoint to human viewpoint. Heart has some different meanings. It's not always just the mind. And we're going to see here it also has to do with volition. Now, this, this statement that we find in 1 Kings 11.2 uh, comes out of two key passages in the Old Testament. It summarizes what's in Exodus 23.31 and following which is where God gives the Mosaic law for marriage. So first of all, Solomon breaks the divine establishment basis for marriage by having more than one wife. Polygamy violates divine establishment, as does any kind of homosexual marriage, pederasty, anything other than one man and one woman is a violation of divine establishment and once you start changing your definition of marriage, and it doesn't matter whether they call it civil union or any other sophistry, because that's all it is. Uh, a rose by any other name, what? That's why it smells just as sweet, or in this case, a cow patty by any other name. Okay, it's just as foul. It's just as putrid. It's just as much an abomination as if it is marriage. And it is self-destructive for a nation to tolerate it and to in, uh, incorporate it into law. So God tells the, the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt, in Exodus 23, 31 and following, he says, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea uh, to the Sea of the Philistines. That would be the Mediterranean. And from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, this is basically the same boundaries that he gave to um, Abraham. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods, period. Entering into marriage involves a, a covenant, a contract. So that's a violation of the Mosaic law stipulations for marriage for the people. Uh, verse 33, they shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
verse 12 of Exodus uh, 34. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down the altars and smash their pillars and cut down their asherim. See, this was the one flaw we saw early on in 1 Kings chapter 3, that Solomon loved the Lord with all his heart, but he didn't tear down the high places. Now, they, they didn't have a central sanctuary built yet. They had, it was kind of split. They had the altar up on the Temple Mountain. They had the rest of the tabernacle in Gibeon. But here they, um, but he allowed these alternate sites. And see, it's those little things that we don't think are that bad. Those secret sins, the things that we think, well, I'm just not going to deal with that. That's too convicting. It's too much fun. That's what I enjoy, whatever it is. And then uh, we eventually give into it, give into it, and it begins to uh, grow and take on a life of its own. Uh, so in Exodus 34:12, they're told to tear down and remove completely all evidence of human viewpoint thinking. That's what that is. Just as that's what we do in sanctification. This is a great illustration of the process of spiritual growth. We have to take, tear down or capture every stronghold. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians. We are taking captive every thought. That's the idea. Not most of them, but every thought. Exodus uh, 34:14 goes on to state, "For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord." whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, uh, contrary uh, to Oprah Winfrey, when she heard about this and said, well, you know, God must be pretty petty because he's jealous, the point here is this is an anthropopathism, meaning that God is not going to tolerate the worship of other gods because it's destructive and it doesn't fit reality. Verse 15, otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot, See, the idea of harlotry is and, and, and uh, adultery really pictures unfaithfulness. And the key contract that you have between God and Israel is this legal contract with the nation. And God, the first part of this is they will have no other gods beside God. So it's a loyalty issue. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They would play the harlot with other gods and sacrifice to the gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So you don't want to get into the trap of compromise with unbelievers and even believers who are operating on a human viewpoint. This same principle is clarified later on in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Furthermore, Moses, uh, uh, Moses writes, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly uh, destroy you. This is the direct quote that is quoted in 1 Kings 11, verse 2. And then the king... Solomon is violating the Mosaic law for the king, Deuteronomy 17, 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So Solomon has violated this uh, on both levels, because he, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy 
The problem is when you take it to an inordinate degree, and that is a personal decision, not a decision anybody else should make for you, like the government, or some other bleeding-heart liberal and say, well, you have too much money, so we're going to tax it away from you. Uh, that's not their decision. They're not God. Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, they're not supposed to multiply wives, and that's exactly what Solomon did. So he's in violation of the divine establishment law for marriage. He's uh, in violation of the Mosaic law for marriage for everybody and for the Mosaic law for marriage for the king. The problem underlying this marriage with unbelievers, relationships, intimacy with unbelievers, is that we become influenced by their thinking. We don't handle the people problem very well, the peer pressure problem. We don't like to, people to think that we're weird or we're strange, and you hold to those fundamentalist ideas, and everybody talks about how the fundies are so bad, and so these words become so pejorative, and we want to be popular, and we want to be liked, and we want to be appreciated and thought that we're, we're not stupid or dumb or uneducated or superstitious. And so there's this, this uh, very subtle pressure, and especially teenagers and college kids are extremely susceptible to this kind of peer pressure. And so they, there's strong warning in Scripture not to associate at levels of intimacy with unbelievers because of the way they will influence believers in the wrong direction. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says, Do not be bound. And the word there for bound is a word that is often used in relation to marriage. doesn't mean that marriage is something negative. It has to do with that legal relationship. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. These are rhetorical questions. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is a representative of an idol and thus demonism? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. Notice these are Old Testament quotes. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. That's that idea of being holy. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So the point is that there needs to be this separation, this distinction. But Solomon violates that, and in doing so, he is violating and the condition that God placed in the promise that he gave uh, Solomon when he appeared to him in 1 Kings chapter 9. Remember in his first meeting, um, one, one other verse I had up here that's a good verse to remember. Every teenager ought to memorize this. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's the problem of peer pressure. So we have New, Old Testament, New Testament stipulation on these points. Now, 1 Kings 3.14 in God's first appearance to Solomon he told Solomon, if, conditional clause, the, he's, God's going to be true to his promise to David that one of David's descendants is going to sit on an eternal throne. Now, is that going to go through Solomon or someone else? 
So he says to Solomon, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And he goes on to expand on other blessings. But then in the second appearance, after the temple is dedicated, in 1 Kings 9, 4, God says to Solomon, as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. See, it's conditional, though. The Davidic covenant wasn't conditional. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't conditional. But this promise to Solomon is, he's saying, Solomon, if you will be faithful, if you will be obedient, then the line will go through you and you will have that blessing and you will have that honor. But if you're not, if you're not, if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, which is exactly what he does, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. This doesn't happen. This shows the forbearance, the patience, the grace of God. This doesn't happen to 586 for another 400 years. It happens sooner for the northern kingdom. It happens there in 250 years. And God, God goes on to say, I will cast out my sight, so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among people. See, it has to do with God's reputation. His reputation is firm because he's not going to break the contract with Abraham and David. But he's going to keep it firm that he's an upright God of integrity and righteousness because he's not going to let his people get away with sin. And he's going to be patient, long-suffering. He's going to show them grace, but eventually there's condemnation and discipline. He says in verse 8, And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, and who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. For people who know, when you are standing under Robinson's Arch on the eastern wall at the very southeastern tip of the temple wall at the old wall in Jerusalem. And you look down as to what they've excavated in the last 30 years and you see these huge temple stones that weigh 10, 15, 20 tons each. And they landed in that pile. And you see how the street that was there is just crushed in where the arch had fallen and hit. And you say, what caused this? 70 A.D., same principle. The initial discipline is 586, but this is the destruction of the temple in, in 70 A.D. The answer is the same. It is because Israel was disobedient, God judged the people. So Solomon is going to experience the judgment of God, in, and it's going to be announced in 1 Kings 11. And we'll get on to that and what happens in terms of the challenge from the idolatry next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to be challenged with uh, the truths of your word and recognize that, that Solomon as a historical figure, his failure and the consequences of his sin are designed as not only a lesson of your faithfulness 
in the past and your integrity, but also exemplify the same principles that go on today in our lives, and that this is for an example to us, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, an example for us that we may see how not to live. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.